Welcome to the Link to Prevention podcast, hosted by the KSARC Prevention Team. On today's episode, we invited one of KSARC's bilingual therapists to join Jessica in answering some student questions. When we're in classrooms, students are often given the opportunity to anonymously ask us questions. We decided to answer a few of those today to give our listeners some more insight into the types of questions students are asking this school year. Adriana will be joining us to offer her clinical perspectives, and I'll let her go ahead and introduce herself now. Hi, uh, my name is Adriana. I am a bilingual therapist here at KSARC. I've been a therapist here for about five years now, and so I work with kids, teenagers, and adults providing trauma-focused treatment in both English and Spanish, Um, and I'm very excited to be here. I've listened to some of the other episodes of the podcast, so excited to be in conversation today. Yeah, we're super glad to have you. Adriana was also a school-based therapist last year, so we worked closely with her in some of the schools that we were in, which was cool. And Jessica will also be answering some questions um, with the expertise of a current prevention specialist and also a former legal advocate. So we're glad to have both of you on. First student question, what if you're embarrassed to ask for consent or want them to ask? Adriana, why don't you start? Yeah, I think this is a question that a lot of students have. I think just the idea of talking of consent seems a little clunky or embarrassing and a lot of people you know wonder how how do I ask this without it being awkward how do I talk about this with my partner Um, and I think that the thing to remember is that when talking about consent it shouldn't just be a one-time conversation and it it doesn't have to be this formal thing of like sign here on the line if it's okay for me to kiss you or touch you or whatever which I think sometimes that's why people find it to be awkward or they can't really imagine doing it. And really consent should be kind of an ongoing conversation, um, you know, during any sort of activity with with your partner, um, but also beforehand. And I think something that can help with that awkwardness or embarrassment is having multiple conversations even before anything happens. And this takes practice. And I think that the embarrassment goes away or at least gets easier the more practice that you have talking about these things and you know we a lot of times think about consent in the context of romantic relationships but we can get better we can get more practice even with our friendships right or with our family members and i think just learning and practicing having conversations about what you're okay with and what you're not okay with with all the people in your life it then makes it easier to then do it do so in a romantic relationship or, um, you know, in a sexual relationship. And also sometimes, you know, I think it might be a sign that maybe, you know, with the question of having sex with someone, like if it's going to be that embarrassing or horrible or (laughs) awkward to have, to have that conversation about consent, then maybe you're not ready to have sex or maybe, you know, that's not a person who you want to have sex with. Yeah, that is basically exactly what we tell students when they ask us this question in the classroom during our lessons is that like if you're going to be in a relationship with somebody especially a romantic relationship you're going to need to be able to have difficult and um, sometimes embarrassing or awkward conversations with them about a lot of different things and so yeah if you're not comfortable 
to enough to do that with them, then like maybe you're just not ready to do that thing yet with them or yeah, or with them specifically or in general practicing having those conversations, knowing that it doesn't have to be as big of a thing, I think, as sometimes people make it out to be. And it can just be as simple as like, is this okay? Do you like this? I can stop. Like anything like that doesn't have to be, like you said, super formal or anything. Great. Yeah. Thank you for sure. Um, Jessica, why don't you start with answering this next one? Uh, What is the legal process of sexual assault cases? So it can look a little different depending on the situation, depending on the age of the person who's reporting, the age of the offender. But generally what happens is that something happens to somebody, somebody is hurt, then that person can make a decision as to whether or not they want to talk to somebody else about that and who it is that they want to talk about that thing with. If that person wants to talk to law enforcement, that is an option. That is always something that they can do if they want to have that initial conversation with somebody else, like a legal advocate or a teacher or a counselor or somebody that they trust more or a parent or a family member. That is also an option too. And then that person can help that individual, that victim, that survivor decide if they want to then report that to law enforcement or Sometimes, depending on the age of the person, that report may have to be made on their behalf. But in general, what happens is somebody decides that they want to report to law enforcement. The first person that they're going to talk to is either usually going to be either a patrol officer or somebody who is um, who works in police precinct that is not a detective. So the initial report will usually just go to a general officer who's ever on shift and on duty during that time. And then that will then be forwarded to a detective for investigation for in a specific unit. Once that case gets assigned to that detective, usually that detective will reach out for an additional interview with the survivor and then they will investigate what happened. Once that investigation is complete, that could take anywhere from a couple weeks to months. Once that process is complete, that detective takes all the information that they've gathered, all the people that they've talked to, any evidence that they have, and they send all of that to um, something called a filing prosecutor. So there is one filing prosecutor in Kent. There's one filing prosecutor in Seattle that handle all of the sexual assault cases in those given areas. So either north of I-5 or south of I-5. And then they will decide if they feel that they can prosecute that person and that a reasonable jury of 12 people will find that person guilty of the crime that they are being accused of. If they do find that that case is strong enough to take to trial, then they will file charges against that person. If they feel that there is not enough information, not enough evidence, sometimes they will re-interview people so that that specific prosecutor can hear from these people and ask the questions that they want to ask. If there are questions that the detective didn't ask that they feel are important to know, sometimes they'll re-interview people. But ultimately, it's kind of that person's decision to decide whether or not files get or charges get filed. If charges are not filed, then that case and that report will still remain with law enforcement in case something happens in the future with that same person, that same offender, or that same victim. But then if it is charged, then that kind of moves into that general process that people think of that um, that person will be brought in for an arraignment. 
that person will then be assigned to a defense attorney and then the case kind of progresses from there. A majority of the cases that we see will result in a plea, which means that that victim or that survivor never has to testify in a trial. And that's kind of up for the prosecutor to hopefully have that conversation with that victim to see if a trial is not something that they want to do, then they will try a little bit harder to get a plea. Usually a plea means that that charge gets brought down. Um, So what they were initially charged with will get reduced in some way that will incentivize that person to agree to take that offer. Or if it has to go to trial, then they will move forward with that process. There will be a full jury trial and that person will be decided as guilty or not guilty by that that jury. And I will say that this is specifically for Washington state. So that might look differently in different states. And also that, especially at Case Arc within the King County area, there are legal advocates here that can help people with every single step in that process. Um, before reporting, even after a case is charged, they can still assist after that. There, there are always people that are here to help because it is such a very confusing and long and specific process too that it can go a lot of different ways depending on how that case looks and who's involved and what's going on with all of these different things so I would say that's kind of the general process for more information or if you're really thinking about what your case could specifically look like I would recommend talking to a legal advocate because they can give you all that information without you having to have a report made already yeah thank you for that reminder we have such a great group of legal advocates here at KSARC Um, we really appreciate that team All right. So for our next question, if sex is not consented, would it be rape? Yeah. So I think this is also a question that comes up a lot when I'm talking about consent uh, with clients. And the way I kind of conceptualize this is, you know, we talk a lot in, in therapy about what's the difference between sex and sexual assault. And the main difference really comes down to was there a consent or not? Are both parties able to give consent to what's happening? And that's really the big difference between the two. So kind of on a very basic answer to this question, if without consent, it's not sex, right? And I know that that may look, I don't know if Jessica, you want to talk about kind of legally what that looks like, but I think just kind of in a general human to human kind of context, right? Sex is something that's between two people, right? And so if one person isn't consenting, like, you know, you you don't want to be having sex with somebody who's not into it and not excited about what's happening. So that's kind of how I talk about it with my clients is like, you know, it's it's a two-way street. It's something that you're doing together, right? So that's why not even considering the legal aspect of it, right? But like, you want both people to be consenting and excited about what's happening. Otherwise, it's just one person doing something to the other person. Completely agree. I think that when we talk about consent in general, especially when we talk about it in middle school, we really do talk about it as just like asking for permission to do a lot of different things. And like, we know that there's not a legal repercussion to like not asking for consent with everything that we do. Children steal their friends' toys. Like they, (laughs) these are things that we do. We don't always ask for consent and there's not always legal ramifications for not asking for consent. But especially when sex is involved, if there's not consent, then that is not sex. That is sexual assault. That is kind of the definition legally of sexual assault is is anything, any sexual contact at all without the consent of, of one or, you know, of one person involved in one or many people involved in that situation. Always have to have consent with sex. 
we'll make this our last one for today. It's one that we get all of the time, probably in every classroom that we're in. How do I support my friend? What do I do if something happened to my friend? I think this is hard, especially when you're not an adult sometimes to know what to do. I think just trying to be there for your friend, asking them what you can do to help, sometimes even just listening to them and letting them know that you believe them and um, that you're there for them. I think that can make a huge difference because I know, you know, people feel alone or they feel like they won't be believed. So I think just doing, just, you know, letting your friend know, I believe, I believe you, I'm here. What can I do to help? And then I think just another huge thing that can that you can do as you know as someone that's not an adult right is find an adult who can help right so figuring out who are the safe people in your life that you trust and also you know making sure that that's something your friend wants to do right and if your friend does want to tell an adult whether that be their parent or a teacher you know um I think a big help can be to just go with them if that's what they would like and support them in that. Cause it can be scary, right? To it's probably scary for your friend to tell you what happened, right? And then probably even harder for them to tell an adult. So I think just being there through that process and, and helping them with whatever they need help with. I don't know if I have too much more to add to that, but yeah, listening to them, hearing them, not letting your emotions dictate your response. I think that is something that we're kind of prone to do sometimes, especially because we, we talk about this a lot, but we know that a majority of sexual assault offenders are people that that victim knows that they are at least acquainted with, which means that if you know that person who's disclosing, you, you there's a possibility that you can know the offender as well. And like that can bring up a lot of emotions, even if it is just like, I know that my friend was harmed. You can be upset about that. And it is totally normal and valid, of course, to be upset that your friend was hurt, but really just making sure to focus on what they're asking for, what they're needing, and then kind of following their lead and and feeling your emotions maybe after you're done with that conversation with that person so that they are not then trying to manage their emotions and your emotions during the conversation. And And then also making sure that you recognize your response to what's going on and how much you can you can handle of what this person is is talking to you about because sometimes we have more of a capacity to deal with things than other times and some days you are already low and it's okay to let that person know that there are other supports out there and there are other people that they can talk to if they're going through something really really hard and really difficult and you don't have to hold everything for everybody all the time Great. Thank you both so much for the work that you do and also for being with us today and answering these questions. Until next time, stay curious, be kind, and take care. To find out more about the services offered and to stay up to date on everything that prevention is doing, check us out online at ksarc.org. That's K-C-S-A-R-C.org. This podcast was funded in part by a grant awarded by the Department of Justice. Points of view in this podcast are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the Department of Justice. Grants funded are administered by the Office of Firearm Safety and Violence Prevention under the Public Safety Unit at the Washington State Department of Commerce.